Well, good morning, everybody. How are we all doing? Pretty good. Everybody recovered from Christmas? No. <laughs> we have uh, far too many cookies at our house still, and I'm working on it, but I'm the only one, so it's, it's a lot of work. <laughs> we are going to be uh, taking a look at Psalm 1, and that's, um, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the Bibles in the pews, and it's on page 472 in that Bible. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, since this is December 30th, we are at the cusp of a brand new year, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about New Year's resolutions. And some people are super into New Year's resolutions, some other people are not really into New Year's resolutions, and that's okay. I, I think it's a great, uh, just kind of a, a marker in the year to say, okay, how do I want to live my life in the upcoming year? And more importantly, how does God want me to live my life in the upcoming year? What should my priorities be? Are there new habits that I need to form? Are there things that I need to change about my, the way my family works, the way I interact at my job, uh, for our church? What does it look like to go into 2019? And I just think it's a great, just mark on the calendar to stop and think. And so I've been thinking a lot about this, and, and I have one New Year's resolution, and it's a resolution that I have for myself, and it's something that I would ask God to give our entire church body. And that's that we would grow in the depth of our relationship with God this year. That that would be something that all of us focus on, that it's something that we all pursue, and that it's something by God's grace that he grants us depth and richness in. And the way I said that is, in, is important, that we have a relationship with God. That's an important distinction. Um, there's a guy named Sky Jatani. He's an author and a pastor. He wrote a book called With. And in this book, he talks about four different ways that we relate to God, and then a fifth way that we should be relating to God. And what he says is, sometimes we relate to God in that we are under God. We, we see ourselves as under God. And the way that looks is, is God has a set of rules, a set of expectations for our life. And if we are obedient to those rules, he will grant us favor. Some of us relate in a way that, we, that he calls over God. Where God exists, God created the world, and we benefit from the natural law and order that he created, but we don't really give him a whole lot of thought. Some of us relate in a way that's called from God. We, we come to God when we have needs, when we're sick, when we're broke, when our relationships are screwy. We cry out to God and we expect him to, like a genie in the bottle, give us what we need. And sometimes we relate in a way that is for God. We get excited about the mission of God. We ex get excited about um, working for God, and we become kind of like God's employee, and we're passionate about the work, but that's really the only basis of our relationship. And Jatani writes in this book that what we should be focusing on is a relationship with God, because see, all those other postures of our hearts they're all seeking to use God for our own benefit. 
Whether, whether it's if we follow the rules, everything will be okay, or whether we just ignore God and take advantage of his benefits, or we go to God asking for material things, or we find our purpose in his mission, all of those postures of our hearts seek to use him for what he can do for us. But a posture of heart that is with God just seeks God for who he is, seeks him for himself. And this can be kind of confusing, I think, when we relate to God, because he can seem kind of far away and distant. But if we change the parties in this discussion, if I talk about these kind of relationships with my family, it's really easy to see that they're pretty dysfunctional. If my children consider, if, if, if they look at me and they think, dad's got rules, and if I follow the rules, everything will be okay. Well, that's kind of abusive, potentially. And, and if, you, if you see a family dynamic like that, you kind of go, like, there's something off there. If, if my children and my wife recognize that I have a job, and I earn money, and I pay the bills, and we have a house, and we have food, and that's really all that dad's good for, well, that's not good either. If dad is a vending machine, if every time I want something, my kids say, we just go to dad, hey, I need a 20, but that's the extent of our relationship, there's a problem there. Or if my kids are so focused on just living up to the Adam's name that that's the only kind of relationship we have, it's easy to see there's a problem. See, I want my kids to just want to hang out with me. I want them to be with me. I want them to snuggle up on the couch just because they like spending time with me. And that's the difference between having a relationship with someone and using someone for your own benefit. And as we're in the middle of the Christmas season, I don't know if you knew this, but Christmas lasts for 12 days and we're only on day six. So Merry Christmas. Um, we talk about Emmanuel, the idea of God with us. This is a title of Jesus. We talked about it last Sunday when we were looking at Isaiah chapter 7. And the, Isaiah says the, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He comes to earth as a human being, and he lives with his people. And he gives us this example that this is the kind of relationship that he wants with his people. And so as we look at Psalm 1 a little bit, I think there are some things that we can glean from Psalm 1 that will help us cultivate a relationship with God. But before we dive into the verses, I, I, I think it's helpful to kind of have a, a an understanding of how the Psalms work. Because it's, it's really easy to just read Psalm 1 and then and just kind of say, well, it's kind of a poem about how you should read your Bible. And that's kind of true. But it's also bigger than that. It's, it's, kind of, it's the opening introduction to the whole book of Psalms. And the way Psalms works is the book that we have in our Bibles is 150 Jewish poems that were put together sometime after the Jewish exile to Babylon. If you're not familiar with that part of history, in about 586 BC, before Jesus, uh, the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and um, captured 
the Jewish people, took them out of their land, destroyed their city, brought them to Babylon into captivity. And they lived there for about 70 years. And God was uh, disciplining them and, 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 and working on their hearts to restore them to himself. And after 70 years, um, Cyrus the Great, who was a Persian, who the Persian Empire had conquered the Babylonian Empire, he decided to let the Israelite people go back to their home to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem. And, and this period you can read about in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And during this time, it's called the post-exilic time, uh, historians and Bible scholars think that someone, we don't know who, took the Psalms and assembled them into the form that they are today. They didn't write them then, that many of the Psalms had been in use in Israel for a long time. A couple of them were written by Moses thousands of years prior. Many of them were written by David hundreds of years before this. But someone at this time in history decided to take them all and put them in one big book. And this person didn't just throw them all together. He put them in a certain order, and, and the first clue to that order is the very end of the book of Psalms. There are five Psalms, Psalm 146 through 150, and they all start and end with the word hallelujah. They're praise songs, and hallelujah means praise the Lord. It's a command to God's people to praise God. And we see these, this ending in these five Psalms, and if you continue thinking about the number five, and continue to read through the book of Psalms, you'll see that the book of Psalms is actually divided into five books. And in the, your English translation, you probably have sections in the Psalms that says book one, book two, book three. And the reason we can see that there are five books is at the end of every book, so the end of book one is Psalm 41. The end of Psalm 41 says... Uh, Psalm 41.13 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And if you read Psalm 41, it's almost if verse 13 was just kind of added on. It doesn't really flow. And, and the thought is that Psalm 41 ends at verse 12, and then the editor put in verse 13 as the end of book one. And at the end of book two, there's a very similar statement about pray, being, God being praised forever and ever. The same thing at the end of book three and book four. And so it's very clear if you study through the Psalms that there are five sections to the Psalms. And if you've been with us as we've studied through Matthew, you might remember that Matthew is also divided into five sections, and the likely reason for that is because a Jewish reader would immediately think five sections, five books of Moses. Because the Jewish people lived their lives completely around the five books of Moses. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And this is the law of the people of God. This is, if you wanted to get to know who God was, if you wanted to know what his expectations for your life were, you would read the five books of Moses. And so the, the editor of Psalms is making a connection between the book of Psalms and the five books of Moses. And so as we read Psalm 1, and we'll get there in a minute, but it says in, it talks about the Lord's instruction in verse 2, or the law of the Lord, depending on your translation. That word is Torah, which means teaching. And so it's almost as if the editor of Psalms is saying, as you 
seek to follow God, as you seek to worship Yahweh, as you study the five books of Moses, here are another five books, a companion book of poems to help you in your practice of your faith. And this whole book of poetry starts with Psalm 1. So Psalm 1 opens with, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners, sit in the company of mockers. And so the psalmist opens with this kind of negative. This, this, this happy person is this person who doesn't do these things. And this is a progression. It's, it's ever-deepening intimacy with a certain kind of person. Listening to the vi- advice of someone, hanging around with this person in public, hanging around with this person or these people in private. And he's saying, be careful who you allow to influence you. And there's, there's a little bit of a, a question mark in my mind here because I immediately think about Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you would say that your supreme authority is Jesus. His life, his teaching, the model of who, how he lived. And so you look at Jesus and you say like, okay, he hung out with sinners all the time. He was, he was accused of um, being a glutton and a drunk because he went to parties and he hung out with tax collectors and the religious leaders of the day just hated him for it. So how do you reconcile the life of Jesus with this verse in Psalm 1? And I think we, we learn how to do that in verse 2. Because verse 2 starts with instead. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. And we'll dig into that in a minute. But what the psalmist is doing is he's using these two verses to compare and contrast two different kinds of lifestyle. And the one lifestyle is someone whose closest relationships, whose values, whose character, uh, who takes advice from a certain kind of people that are outside the covenant community of God. That's Whenever the Bible talks about the wicked or sinners or mockers, it's not saying that some people are good people and some people are bad people because in other places we know that everyone is bad. Everyone has darkness and brokenness and sin in their hearts. What the Bible is saying is there are certain people that are part of the covenant community of God's people, and there are certain people that have rejected that community. This was the case in Israel. You could be an Israelite or you could be an outsider. Even outsiders could enter the the community of God's people. They could be added in, but if they weren't in, they were out. And that was a real distinct delineation. And in the church, it's the same way. You're either a follower of Christ or you're not. It doesn't make you a better person morally or a worse person morally, but it, the Bible does make a distinction that there are members of the community that have been saved by grace through faith in Christ who are followers of Jesus, and then there are people that reject that community. And so when the Bible says the, the wicked and the sinner and the mocker, these are people that have rejected 
the rule of God in their life that are not part of the covenant community and don't want to be. And so the psalmist is saying the person who incrementally gets more of their values, more of their character, more of the way they live their life from the outsider, well, is not happy. The one who rejects that is happy. And then he makes a comparison. Instead, the happy person lives their life like this. They delight in the Lord's instruction. Now, delight is an interesting word because it means to have pleasure or happiness or joy or glee. And I was thinking about that. Like, I don't, I don't know if I can think of the last time I delighted in anything. My kids delight in stuff all the time. They delight in music and movies and fireworks and Christmas lights. And my six-year-old delights in fizzy drinks. Like, we, we don't give them soda a lot, so let me have a, have a, a Coke, and she'll go like, the bubbles are so sharp. <laughs> it's like, and she'll just freak out, and she loves it. But the thing is, delight is an emotion that kind of gets away from you. And I think as adults, we're trained to not let that happen. It is inappropriate in most settings to let your emotions run away with you. Especially like if you're dealing with anger, to have anger run away from you could be potentially terrible. We have a phrase called, uh, that says, fly off the handle. This person flies off the handle. That's, that comes from the idea that you're swinging an axe and the axe head flies off the handle. And if that happens, that's dangerous. If it hits somebody or breaks something, it could be deadly. But when was the last time you flew off the handle with delight? You just couldn't contain how joyful and gleeful you were. I have to admit that I can't remember. I'm pretty good at being stoic. But the psalmist says, the, the one who is happy delights in the Lord's instruction. This person reads God's word and is thrilled by it. It's important here, as we, as we think about this idea of living a life with God, that we keep some things separate. And growing up in a in a church tradition, and many like evangelical Protestant church traditions are very focused on the Bible. And that is awesome. We live in a, in a time when we have unprecedented access to the Bible, and it's a super important discipline, and we're going to continue talking about it, to be reading the Bible, to be meditating on the Bible. But there is a difference between God and God's word. And the way this makes the most sense to me is when Joanna and I were dating, I think we started dating in September, and she went to Bible college in California in January. And she told me later that this was the plan, absence makes the heart grow fonder. So she left town, assuming that I would propose marriage as soon as she got home, which I did. So she won. Um, but while she was away, she, we wrote letters back and forth to one another. And I loved getting her letters because she, they, they, were, um, 
they were part of her heart and her soul and her life, and she would share her thoughts and her feelings, and I would read these letters, and I couldn't wait to get the next letter. And then she came home, and we got married. That was 16 years ago. I don't have those letters anymore. I might be a bad husband for that. I I don't know where they are. I probably threw them away. I know my wife has the letters I wrote to her, but I think that shows that I love her more than she loves me because, (laughs) because I have her with me. I don't need those letters anymore. When I want to be with my wife, I don't run to the closet and read a letter that she wrote 16 years ago. I go hang out with her because she's here. And I wonder someday when we are fully alive in God's kingdom and something comes up, are we going to go like read 1 Corinthians or are we just going to go talk to Jesus? I don't know. I'm speculating. I believe there's probably a place for God's word in the kingdom of God. I think scripture alludes to that. But if I have a question about theology and I can just walk over and ask Jesus or I can dig around in the Old Testament, I'll probably just go ask Jesus. But see, right now, That's not the world we live in. We live in a world like I did when my soon-to-be fiancé was thousands of miles away in California. I don't have Jesus face-to-face with me every day. Paul says it's like we are looking through a mirror dimly, but someday we will be face-to-face. So right now, this book that God has written for us should be precious to us because this is where we see his character. This is where we learn about his will. And so the psalmist says, the one who is happy delights in the Lord's instruction and meditates on it day and night. Now there's there's a meditation that, that many of us are familiar with that is, that is kind of Eastern in origin. A lot of the, the Hindu and Buddhist traditions um, talk about meditation a lot. And meditation at its base is, is, is focusing your thoughts. And in Eastern meditation, you focus your thoughts typically on nothing. You want to focus your thoughts on a, on a blankness or a void. I don't recommend that. I think that's kind of pointless. But in Biblical meditation in, in, in the Jewish faith and in the Christian faith, meditation is focusing your thoughts on an idea, on a person, on a verse of Scripture. And so the one who meditates is focusing on the content of God's Word. And I tend to think of this as like an old scholar in a like castle with candlelight over a bunch of manuscripts just pouring over the Bible day and night, But that doesn't have to be the case. We can get up in the morning and read a passage in the Word of God and just bring that to mind throughout the day when we're stuck in traffic or when we're on our lunch break or when when we're standing in line at the grocery store. And, And we can think about that thing that we've read and turn it over in our minds. Meditation is a is is like um 
rumination. Rumination is what cows do. They, they chew a piece of grass and they chew it up and they swallow it and then they regurgitate it and they chew it up some more and they swallow it again and they regurgitate it again and that's super gross. But that's what the psalmist says we should be doing with God's word, that we should just be turning it over and over again in our minds. And then what happens? He says, he or she is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. So he uses a metaphor uh, of of a tree planted in in nutrient-rich, well-watered soil. And as we think about living life in relationship with God, the tree is planted in the ground, in the soil, at the source of life. And the tree, the tree is an independent of that source of life. It can't just leave the ground. It can't just leave the stream or it will die. It is connected to those nutrients And the psalmist says that it bears fruit in its season. The tree has a purpose to bear fruit, to produce something. And and I love that it says in its season because I think it, it can be so depressing and defeating when you look at your life and you think, God is not doing anything. God is absent or I am, I am not fruitful like I want to be. And the thing about fruit is it doesn't happen all the time. It happens seasonally. We get apples at a certain month in the year. And then for the rest of the year, the tree is busy doing other things to prepare itself for more apples. And so if you look at your life and it doesn't feel like it's super fruitful, if it doesn't feel like God is doing amazing things or you're growing in the ways that you'd like to grow, it's because God is working on something else inside of you to prepare you for fruitfulness later on. There's this uh, meme on social media that I see all the time, and I don't even know if it's a Christian thing, but it's a, it's a picture of a plant, and the, the plant is under the surface, and it's got the roots going down, and and the, the statement on the, on the graphic is that if, if you don't see the plant sprouting, it's because what the plant's doing is it's growing its roots deeper. It's spending its energy growing into the ground before it can grow out of the ground. And I think a lot of times that's what God's doing in our lives is we have expectations for all of this outward ministry or spiritual growth or discipline or um, life and and God doesn't seem to be happening. But what has to happen before all of that outward stuff is a bunch of inward stuff. And God is often spending time growing us more deeply in ways that maybe we can't even see before we're ready to produce outward fruit. And then this psalmist says, whatever he does prospers. And this is one of those verses where we could, just, we could just put that on a bumper sticker and go with that. Like, whatever he does prospers. That's my life verse. 
But we have to remember that there's a context to this poem. The psalmist is still talking about that tree. Whatever that tree does prospers. Well, what does that tree do? It grows and it makes fruit. See, the tree can't be like full of apples and be like, okay, I'm done with that. I'm going to make honey now. That's not how trees work. It can't be like, you know, I think I'm going to make bacon. No, you don't do that. You're a tree. You make the fruit that you're intended to make. And the psalmist says, when you are planted next to that stream, when you're delighting in the instruction of the Lord, whatever you do prospers. But what you do is you bear fruit for the kingdom. You increase in love and joy and peace and patience. You, in, you increase in your view of the world to where you see it more clearly the way Jesus sees it. You become more passionate for the lost. You become more, become more bold in sharing your faith. And these things grow because that's the kind of creature that you are, and that's the soil that you're planted in. This verse doesn't say everything that I do prosper, so I'm going to go buy a lottery ticket and I'm going to win. And notice that the condition of the tree is that it is planted beside flowing streams. This is where the tree's life is. And because of that, it produces fruit. And if we live lives with God, we recognize that fruitfulness, whatever that fruitfulness looks like for each one of us, is a side effect of our relationship with God. And again, if, if, we, if we have a relationship where our goal is fruitfulness, we're just using God so that we can be bigger or better or greater or whatever, fill in the blank. That's not the relationship that we're called to have because we're called to delight in the Lord's instruction, and by extension, delight in the Lord himself. In verse 4, he contrasts this with the wicked again. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Remember, the wicked, the wicked are, members, are people who are not members of the covenant community. They have rejected the offer to be with God and his people. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're morally suspect. It could mean that. But it means that they have chosen to be outsiders. And it says they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Well, what is chaff? Chaff is a part of a plant, a piece of wheat that used to be connected to life. And it's no longer connected to life, and it's dried up, and it's blown away. And so, ultimately, the problem with the wicked is that they are not connected to the source of life. They are not like the tree that's planted next to the stream. They are dead. It's not that the wicked did bad things or said bad things or lived a life that was bad. It's that they are disconnected from the source of life. Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches. And if we abide in him, if we're connected to him, we produce much fruit. 
Then he goes on to say that the branch that isn't connected to the vine withers and dies, and all it's good for is to be thrown into the fire. It's not a judgment on what you did or how you act or the way you live your life, although those things are important. It's a judgment on whether or not you're connected to the vine, whether or not you're connected to the source of life. And the one who doesn't delight in the Lord, the one who doesn't delight in the Lord's instruction is not, and they are like chaff, and they blow away. In verse 5, he says, Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. So the interesting thing about this section, I think, is that the psalmist promises that the wicked will live their lives a certain way and the righteous will live their lives another way. And it looks very similar to some of the things we talked about at the beginning. Being obedient and gaining favor, having your needs met, having a good reputation. The wicked will not ultimately be honored. The Lord is not keeping watch over their path. And they will be ruined. So all of the goals of the person who lives under God or above God or for God or from God, the wicked doesn't see any of those things. This reminded me of a quote by C.S. Lewis. And he writes in Mere Christianity, he says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. So the the interesting irony here is if we focus on a relationship where we say, God is here to meet my needs, or we focus on a relationship that says, God is a scary deity whom we have to be obedient to in order to get by. Or if we focus on a relationship that says, you know, God exists, but I don't really think about him that much. He made the world. I benefit from that. Or if we're so driven to find purpose in working for God that we only see him as a boss, well, in all those things, we don't actually get God. But if we seek after God for his own sake, if we just want to be with God, well, does our obedience bring favor? Yeah. Does he meet our material needs? Yeah. Are we energized and find purpose in being on his mission? Yeah. Do we benefit from the world that he's made? Absolutely. 
If we seek God, we get God and we get all his benefits. But if all we are after are his benefits, according to Psalm 1, we don't get the benefits and we don't get God either. And we have a We have a very distinct faith. If you, if you take a step back and kind of just look at religion in general, this idea that we can have a relationship with the Lord of the universe is unique to Christianity. If, if you think about the idea that God is a ruler and we must obey him in order to have favor, well, that's a very Islamic view of God. It's a very fearful view of God. We believe that God just exists outside of us. He started the world going and kind of left it alone. That's, that's what's called deism. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And if we believe that God is like a genie in the bottle that grants our whims, that's, there's something called the prosperity gospel that is a false gospel that teaches that. And if we are so concerned about God's mission that we forget God, that's a form of what some would call liberal Christianity that sparked up in the early 20th century that set aside who God is in favor of just what we could do on his behalf. But historic Orthodox Christianity that, that comes directly from the teaching of Jesus and the apostles says, no, we can have much more than that. We can have a real personal relationship with the God of the universe. And Psalm 1 says, you know how you get that? You know how you develop that? You spend time in this book and for the, the Jewish reader, their, their Bible was considerably shorter than ours. We have the benefit of what's called the New Testament, the, the stories of the life of Jesus and the, his teachings and the book of Acts as the church was birthed and the letters of the early followers of Jesus as they navigated their new relationship with God. And we have this treasure trove of not only good writings, but God's thoughts we believe the Bible is breathed out by God, that it is written for our benefit by God himself. And seeing as it's a new year, my recommendation for all of us is that we commit to reading the Bible this year. I don't know anybody that I've talked to that's like, you know, I've been reading my Bible faithfully all year and it's been stupid. It's been a waste of time. Everybody who can find the time to commit to studying the Word, well, maybe, maybe I see delight in those people. I don't know. But I would encourage all of you to regularly read your Bibles this year. And I say regularly because it's easy to say read your Bible every day, but then when I miss a day, I feel shame and guilt because I've failed and that's just not the attitude God wants us to approach him with. Confession, over this last holiday week, I have a, a reading plan that I go through on my phone, and I opened it up the other day, and I missed four days. The pastor missed four days. So there you go. 
<laughs> but then I, I started reading again, and I recognized that God still loves me, and He just wants to hang out with me. And so, get a plan. Figure out what... Everybody's different this way. My wife and I have very different reading plans. I know everyone is built completely differently, but figure out what works for you and be in God's Word this year. Read a little bit every day if you can, and don't feel bad if you miss it. Just get back into it. And meditate on it, like the psalmist says, day and night. As you just have time, practice the... um, the practice of just thinking through the things that you've read. And I think what the psalmist says, oh, how happy, I think that's true. I think you will find that you are in better spirits. You are more content. You see fruit in your life. Your relationship with God will be stronger As we close, we, are, we're, we, we take communion every week, um, and we do that for several reasons, but one of the reasons I think communion is important is it is a reminder of, of another way that we experience life with God. Because we have this book, we have the words of God that he wrote down for us, and they're incredibly important. But for someone who's a follower of Jesus, someone who has become a citizen of the kingdom of God, we have something else. We have the spirit of God inside of us. We have the spirit of Christ, Paul says. And as we take the bread and the cup and are reminded of Jesus' body and his blood broken and shed for us, we're also reminded that we take Christ into our lives for nourishment. Jesus says in John, if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And after that sermon, everybody left because that was super weird. But what he was saying was, I need to be in you. We don't just have God's letters to us. We have God's spirit in us. And so we can read the word and we can talk to God and we can listen to his spirit speak to us. And we are incredibly privileged to be able to do that. And so my my resolution for myself and my hope for all of us is that we would just do that more this year, that we would not get so busy and sidetracked with everything that life has going on that we forget that any time we want, we can stop and say, hey, Jesus, I'm confused about this, or I'm scared about this, or how would you have me talk to this person? Or what do you think about this thing? Because he's there and he just wants to be with us. And then all these other things will fall into place. And so as as we pray and as we sing, feel free to come up and, and take communion as you see fit. Spend some time in prayer. Ask the Lord to speak to you. 
and, and see what it would take to make a plan to commit to move in the direction of being closer to him in 2019. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.